Citizen Critic is the podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of movies and television, like Tiger King, The Shining, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The movie should have been reduced 90 minutes. Even then it would have sucked because there is no tie-in with the characters, really. Yeah, because you clopped <laughs> off 90 minutes of it. Next time I make a movie that I can edit my own head and have it make sense. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What if you could learn from 100 of the world's most inspiring women? Now you can. Introducing Seneca's 100 Women to Hear, a new podcast brought to you by Seneca Women and iHeartRadio in partnership with P&G. I'm Kim Azzarelli. In celebration of the 100th anniversary of American women getting the vote, we're bringing you the voices of 100 groundbreaking and history-making women. Listen to Seneca's 100 Women to Hear on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Atlanta child murders is one of the largest and most complex cases in U.S. history. As a team, we've spent months digging through police records, court documents, and media archives. Through all this research, we've come across a lot of unusual stories that don't seem to be widely remembered today. With this episode, we're going to dig deeper into some of these stories. This is The Vault. Where are we going? Down to the sub-basement, high-density storage vault. After driving around Atlanta with Jason and the team, locating some of the prevalent sites in this case, I had many more questions about the patterns of these murders, including if a pattern even existed at all. It was eerie just how close by some of these murders were to each other, and how the pattern seemed to change once bodies started showing up in the rivers. Is it even possible they're all connected? Or are there different patterns at play here? In this episode, we'll be mentioning a book called The List by Chet Detlinger and Jeff Prude. Detlinger was a law enforcement officer, independent investigator, and an author, and Prug was a writer for the LA Times. Though now out of print, their book remains one of the most comprehensive and critical literary sources on the Atlanta child murders. During the investigation, Chet Detlinger focused on geography as part of his independent investigation. Seven former Atlanta policemen give about 20 hours each week to this case. One of them is Chet Detlinger. His strength is not in investigation, but it is in analysis. He's compiled a map with 20 missing and murdered Atlanta children. He counts some Atlanta police do not count because they fit the pattern. Because if you travel Detlinger's route, you can see most of the places where kids were snatched or last seen or dumped without ever leaving your car. He even believes a map he has drawn would show where the killer lives and works and plays. Detlinger believes the killer lives somewhere near Memorial Drive and 2nd Avenue, may hang around near Hollywood and Hightower, and works somewhere between Redwine Road and Stewart Avenue. I'd have someone at this point, someone at this point, someone at this point, and at this point, and I'd be looking for the same car or the same individual to come by that place, and I'd keep them there. And I'd find out, do we have a person passing these points? I mean, we've already got 20 kids dead. And I would find out, and if it showed up, if the same person showed up more than, say, two or three times at the different points on, on this route, I think I'd have a suspect. Furthermore, Detlinger says the official task force can no longer deny some of these cases are related. I, I, I think 
Maybe the kids aren't connected, but the geography sure connected because this child came from here to here, this child came from here to here, and this child came from here to here. Now, the only other explanation would be if this guy, if there are three different killers, and they just happen to wander out and find the same spot to leave a body in. Those, those locations are connected. I've asked members of the unofficial task force why none of their advice is sought by Atlanta police. They all answer the same thing. Politics. Petty politics. Chet Detlinger is ready to share everything he knows, if anybody wants it. We decided to talk to Dr. Maurice Godwin, a private investigator and geographical profiler, who worked with me on my first podcast, Up and Vanished. For Atlanta Monster, we asked him to assemble a heat map of all the missing and murdered cases to see what he could tell us about the geographical patterns. There's two types of serial killers predominantly. You have a commuter, and a commuter commutes from the suburban area into the, a central business district and kills, or he commutes from the inner city out and kills and then goes back home. Or the marauder, and that's just somebody that's just scattered about, running around here, there, just picking them up, you know, in any way they can, and, and killing them and dumping them. That's the two. Comparable terms, typologies, that you want to call them. The first one is called a viper, and the second one's called cobra, obviously based on the behavior of the snakes, the way in which they behave. In my analysis of 92 serial killers, I found that 63% were vipers. They lay low. They target victims near familiar areas, such as home and work. They dispose of earlier victims at considerable distances from home and later victims in or near their comfort zone. That comfort zone provides them, they believe, a psychological blanket of protection. 37% were cobras. Huge difference there. Huge difference. This relates also to a criminal behavior. This type of predator cobra is what we call a hunter. They target victims outside of their comfort zone. So they're not too worried about that blanket of protection. They dispose of each victim at a considerable distance from home and later victims in or near their comfort zones. I have a theory called the wedge theory, and this is based on academic research on soft cases. The wedge theory, the foundation of it is this, that every criminal retains some kind of environmental image of his or her city. Criminals develop mental maps of their environments in the same way non-criminals do. For example, you go to the grocery store, you, go, you take a right out of your driveway, and you go to the shopping center a particular way. Rarely do you deviate from those things. Most people do not deviate. And then finally, criminals use their mental maps thereafter as a spatial frame of reference. That's the foundation of wedge theory. It's sort of shaped like a windshield wiper effect. The home base would typically be near the sharp point of the wedge, and the crimes will be dispersed outward toward the wide part of the wedge. In the Atlanta child murder case, I had 
geographical coordinates, I plotted the 33 locations dealing with these murders. I plotted uh, the body dump sites, and I plotted the abduction sites, and uh, which is rare to have those abduction sites because uh, a lot of cases don't have them. And then I entered those geographical coordinates into my predator system and ran it. And what I got was a 43 to 44 percent probability that the fender lives between Highway 130 and uh, uh, Interstate 29. The probability percentage is low. Normally I'm getting, uh, on other cases, I get at least 50, 51, 55. Here, 43, 44. I think there's something else going on that we're attributing murders to an individual here that they're not responsible for. And that may be the reason why of the low probability plot of 43 to 44% geographically. There's no pattern between the child murders and the adult murders. It's very, very rare that a serial killer will kill children and adults. I would separate uh, Eddie Duncan, age 21, Larry Rogers, age 20, Michael McIntosh, age 23, Jimmy Ray Payne, age 21, John Porter, age 28, Nathaniel Cater, age 27. Those victims fall into the wedge with Wayne Williams's home down at the short point of the wedge. I would separate those victims from the rest of the child murders. We then asked Maurice about Darren Glass, the one victim on the list that has never been found. Darren is an orphan and has a history of running away. He's done it twice before and told some playmates last Sunday that he was going to do it again. Are you worried about him? Sure is. But you just think he, he's going to eventually come Oh, on. he's going to show up. Yes, he is. He's going to show up. And you don't think he's been kidnapped? I sure know he left on his own. You think he left he on his left own? He left on his own because he wanted to leave. And today the searches took the form of a canvas here in Darren's old neighborhood, where searchers went door to door seeking out Darren's old friends who might be able to offer some new information. We're trying to find any information concerning his whereabouts or where he possibly may be at this point. We feel that it's still very possible that Darren Glass could be alive, safe and well at some place. So far, police have no leads at all, but they say this case, like the others, is now top priority. The day marks the seventh month that we've been conducting these searches, and I think it has taken a lot of wear and tear out of a lot of people. They combed the woods, sifted through debris, and bagged what they thought might be evidence in the mounting number of child murders haunting Atlanta. But slowly, as the searchers found nothing, interest dwindled, and the throng thinned to just a few. Now the search is at an end. Well, to try to find the body of, of, of the victim, um, Darren Glass, Normally you would have to have, it's called reverse geographical profiling, meaning that you try to use the offender's home base along with the rest of the victims and try to get a pinpoint area that a victim is likely to be at. In this case, I would pull anything to do with Williams out of that and I would do the analysis with the rest of the victims. And this will be the first time ever that you will be able to use analysis of 
remaining victims to try to find the one victim that's never been found before. The case of Darren Glass is such an outlier. From what geographical profilers like Maurice tell us, it's not impossible for him to still be found, if he is indeed a victim. In the summer of 81, after Wayne Williams was arrested, a South Carolina artist came to Atlanta to paint murals of the child victims on neighborhood housing in the city. But it didn't get the reaction you would expect. Over the weekend, bigger-than-life paintings of the children started popping up around Atlanta. Latonya Wilson's picture on a wall at Bowen Homes, Angel Lanier's in McDaniel Glen, Eric Middlebrook at Henry Thomas Housing Project. The paintings were done in two days by Columbia, South Carolina artist Ralph Waldrop. He paid for the project himself as a gift in remembrance of Atlanta's 28 tragedies. City officials are so impressed with Waldrop's generosity, they plan to make him an honorary citizen of Atlanta tomorrow at a special ceremony. But not everyone is happy with Waldrop's artistic contribution. 16-year-old Patrick Rogers' mother says she and the other mothers are furious that no one asked their permission. If Mayor Jackson did it, he didn't have any reason to do it before asking the parents, would it be all right? I don't think it's right. It make the parents walk out here. When I walk and see that picture up there, it do something to me. Miss Rogers says Camille Bell drove through McDaniel Glen yesterday and was stunned to see her son Yusef's picture in front of her. That ain't nothing but memory. That ain't nothing but her. The mothers plan to meet in the morning to decide what they should do, but it appears what seems to be an out-of-towner's act of kindness has turned sour. I want it down. I want it down. Me, I want it down. We should start a podcast. Yeah, we've all said it. But when it comes time to make it a reality, we get stuck. Well, here's some good news. With Spreaker, all you need to start a podcast is a microphone and a good idea. Spreaker handles the recording, management, distribution, and monetization of your podcast, allowing you to focus on making a podcast. Whether you're discussing the latest moves in the tech sector or just your dating life, Spreaker gives you tools to make your podcast a hit and professional insights about who is listening and where. And as your podcast dream grows, Spreaker only becomes more useful, letting you upload and schedule multiple episodes at the same time, push to multiple platforms, and customize RSS feeds. But what about making money? With Spreaker, monetization is as easy as checking a few boxes. So next time someone says to you, we should start a podcast, Say yes and let Spreaker handle the rest. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. At iHeartRadio, we bring you the best podcasts from the biggest names. Ron Burgundy, check. Chelsea Handler, yep. Questlove, him too. And the one thing these shows have in common, they all started with an idea. And now we want yours. We're looking to you for the next great podcast. Do you have an idea for a podcast? Let's hear it. Any genre, any topic, we want your voice. Pitch us your show for a chance to share it with fellow podcast fans across the globe and become a part of the iHeartRadio podcast family. Simply go to nextgreatpodcast.com to get the details and submit your pitch. In partnership with the creative platform Tongle, iHeartRadio will select up to 10 semifinalists and give them $1,000 to produce a pilot episode. Then, listeners will vote on their favorite to decide the next great podcast. 
The winning show will be made by our best-in-class production team and shared with listeners all around the world. Enter today at nextgreatpodcast.com. That's nextgreatpodcast.com. Why shouldn't the next great podcast come from you? On October 13, 1980, during the height of the hysteria around the Atlanta child murders, an explosion devastated a local daycare center, killing four young black children. The explosion happened at a time when no suspect was in custody, and rumors circulated constantly about KKK connections. At 10.22 on October 13th, an explosion with a force of 75 sticks of dynamite ripped the roof off the daycare center. Four three-year-old boys were killed instantly. So was their teacher. Six others were injured. The black community was panicked. Nine children in Atlanta were already murdered. Now this. They insisted the explosion was a bomb, some sort of sick conspiracy against blacks. Mayor Jackson and others tried to convince them otherwise. The biggest rumor running through this crowd was that the explosion was caused by a bomb. Tension began to build because these people wanted to, needed to, blame something for the tragedy they had just witnessed. Downtown is your place. Downtown. Where the man lives, where the man goes. Downtown where all of the councilmen. Downtown where the jailhouse is. That's where we need to be. Black leaders saw how dangerous the situation could get, so Mayor Jackson and others trying to reassure the crowd. But I want you to know that we will not rest until we turn every stone, until we look under every leaf, until we explode, ex- exploit every possible lead, until we follow every possible possibility. We will do everything in our power to find the reason for this, which at this point appears to be an accident. However, the crowd here did not believe much of what Mayor Jackson had said. They still believed in the rumors that this was a deliberate act of violence. And this didn't help. The rumor of a bomb threat sent emergency teams into the elementary school across the street from the daycare center. They ordered everyone out and were tight-lipped about why. Why are you evacuating the school? Let's let's get back. We're going to ask you kindly to get back, okay? Let's go, sir. You're going to ask to get back. Let's go. Yes. There's a possibility of a bomb. Yes. Nothing happened, either in the school or in the crowds outside, although there were a lot of passionate cries for someone to do something about anything. Mr. Mayor, could you say they need to know something encouraging? relative to the future protection idea. I think that's all they need. We are immediately increasing protection for the area. We will do everything in our power to increase protection for the area. Later, a police investigation showed the explosion was an accident. A poorly maintained boiler blew up. As tragic as it was, it was an accident. Ben Bolin from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know sat down with us again to go over the details of this tragic episode and the subsequent conspiracy theories it spurred. Let's set the stage. It's 10-22, October 13th, 1980, at a place called the Bowen Homes Daycare Center when an explosion occurs. And at first, people have no idea 
what's going on. From miles away, you can see a plume of white smoke. People run from adjacent streets, you know, especially think about the parents who were there who knew roughly where that building was, right? Hundreds of people are, are mobbing the area, uh, teachers running out with their children. We would later learn that five people passed away in that explosion. Uh, there were four children, Andre Stanford, Ronald Brown, Kelvin Snelson, and Terrence Bradley. These boys were all around three years old. In addition, a teacher named Nell Robinson also passed away, and uh, six to seven people were injured. The public immediately thought there was a bomb. And in the archival footage, you can hear people in the back saying, it was a bomb, go downtown, it was the Klan, the Klan did it. This panic was compounded by the fact that the elementary school across the street was also evacuated, and law enforcement refused to say why. And in the absence of transparency, of course, speculation grows. And so all it takes is one person to say, I heard they, that there's a bomb in there, right? And later, officials would say that the explosion was caused by a boiler, right? A, what's called a water tube boiler. And that when this explosion occurred, it occurred with such force that it did prove fatal, but it did not prove some sort of premeditated action. Most importantly, no one, you know, snuck in an explosive. Nobody snuck in under the cover of night and tinkered with this boiler. But given the cultural ecology of the time, it's completely understandable why people would think this, you know, especially if we're looking at a community where, as we have already established, distrust of authority figures is at a high, a completely understandable and rational high. We also have to consider what Chet Detlinger and Jeff Prue point out in their book, The List. This occurred against a backdrop of brutal murders, horrific crimes that also appeared to target minority populations in the United States. There was the shooting of the National Urban League president, Vernon Jordan, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And in Buffalo, New York, black cab drivers were being murdered with their hearts literally cut out of their chest. As you can hear on the footage here, when you hear the explosions, the panic, the chaos, and you already know that someone is targeting children, specific types of children, right? Certain age range, right? And they may even be your children. You feel powerless, right? And, and you cling to a, a nature of explanation, right? As Detlinger points out here, when he was looking at the layout, the mapping of this area, Bowen Holmes fits into the geographical region that he was looking at. He notes that a boy who lived on the same street as the daycare center later disappeared in, in a way that might have been connected, in his opinion, with the murders. And additionally, when a tragedy like this occurs, we hear rumors being treated with the same regard as a fact. And in Dedlinger's case, this is a very by-the-book author and investigator, in his case, he begins to notice things that trouble him. One of the points was made by John Lewis, who was then president of the Atlanta Cab Drivers Association. 
he said he was appointed to a committee to calm public alarm after this boiler explosion because people meet when the explosion occurs, law enforcement pushes them away, gives medical care to people, finds the deceased victims, right? And then later that night, there's another public gathering where people are saying, why isn't anyone doing anything about this? So in a very real sense at this time and in place in history, it feels as if there is not simply one Atlanta. There's more than one Atlanta, right? There are at least two. And the people who are encountering on top of this murder epidemic explosions in places that are supposed to be the safest place your kid could be, it feels like there's another Atlanta an Atlanta that has safety for its citizens, an Atlanta that has non-antagonistic law enforcement, an Atlanta where people can walk at night without fear of a crime. And this feels like a very different Atlanta when you're around exploding daycares. So immediately after getting news of this explosion, the mayor travels there in person seeking to quell these fears. This is not a bomb. Authorities assure me that while a tragedy, this is entirely traceable to this water tube boiler. The crowd is not buying this. And you can hear, you can hear the, the fundamental anger, right? And there's always a sense of betrayal that occurs in a tragedy, right? There's a part of, there's a part of our, our minds, we could even say our souls, that recognizes this is not how things are supposed to be. And you are the mayor this is your job. Fix this. Explain this. And if we don't believe the official explanation, then give us what we see as the real one. There's a book called Outbreak, the Encyclopedia of Extraordinary Social Behavior by two authors, Hillary Evans and Robert Bartholomew. And this is a reference work that compiles different examples of what we would see as public panics. In the case of these incidences that the journalists have compiled, we see several commonalities. And the number one commonality, regardless of anything else, right, regardless of time, space, socioeconomic factors, the number one problem is the perceived lack of transparency. This becomes doubly frustrating and difficult when there is an authority figure, the people in this neighborhood played a large role in this mayor's election. The mayor, regardless of how well perceived he might be, is still functioning as an authority figure in a time when authority figures are considered inherently untrustworthy. So when the dust has settled and all of the immediate questions and answers that can exist do exist, one of the more terrifying things that occurs is you begin to wonder... Is it just this one daycare center? If it's a boiler, is it just this one boiler? How many other daycare centers are here? How many other playgrounds, for example, haven't been repaired in, what, decades? Where is the uh, sewage line that was supposed to be here? Why doesn't this infrastructure exist? An interesting note that some people may recall also in Atlanta history, was the collapse of an interstate, this piece of uh, an interstate called I-85. When this collapsed, there was an official story about a fire that was set by people who didn't mean to burn down this concrete bridge. But again, this becomes symbolic 
of a larger context, right? A lack of a lack of care for public goods, right? It's not maybe it's not just this one daycare. Maybe it's every daycare. Maybe it's every road in this zip code. And we have to remember that Atlanta has a, a provable and undeniable past of using local districting, even unto the level of changing street names to denote the two or more different Atlantas that exist culturally. And for some people, I-85 falling was another example of this. And even today, you will find people who tell you that the official story makes no sense. So it's tempting for us as people to look at history as something that is disconnected. This happened once, we're done with it, we can read about it if we want to. That could not be further from the truth. History never leaves us. And in the case of the Bowen House Daycare Center, the story continues. Yes, this tragedy occurs in 1980. Soon after, the community comes together and they rebuild the daycare center. It was one of the most horrible tragedies Atlanta had ever seen. But in time, attention turned toward making sure a tragedy like this could never happen again. The state legislature passed new laws tightening up the requirements for boiler operation and inspection. And in May, the rebuilt Bowen Homes Community Center was dedicated. A new and more modern boiler now in place. There was optimism all around. So are these long-standing infrastructure problems actually fixed? Well, the answer is no, because in 2007, the furnace explodes again. And ultimately, in 2009, in June of 2009, the daycare center itself is demolished. The Atlanta Housing Authority took a major step today to become the first major city to tear down its public housing projects. Work has officially started on tearing down Bowen Homes. This was a powerful and emotional day for many of the residents who once lived in the Bowen Homes public housing complex. But with that comes change and uncertainty. On reflection, there's no question that this is the right direction. I want them to tear it down because they, people be getting shot in here. I hate to see it go. It's a, this is one of the oldest um, projects in, in America, so it's, it's kind of sad to see it go. These are perfect good apartments. It wouldn't have taught nothing to renovate these apartments and keep it going on. But they did whatever they had to do to make sure that they got this land and this property. I mentioned the Omni in previous episodes as a particularly significant site. Many victims were last seen there or heading there. During our research, we found an anonymous individual who claims Wayne Williams was hanging around the Omni picking up known murdered children from this case. Unfortunately for us, the person's identity was concealed. He was interviewed after Wayne was arrested, but before the trial started. Here it is. The interest in the complex has once again been rekindled by this man, a songwriter who wishes to remain anonymous. In a statement to the FBI, he has told of Wayne Williams and Joseph Bell together at a Buckhead studio. I, re I remember JoJo because he came in and he, uh, he sang for a few, you know, he sang a few tunes. Uh, 
and he had a very good voice. And uh, I was asking Wayne what was he going to do with it, and Wayne said he was going to sign the guy to a contract immediately. He also tells of times when he and Williams went to the Omni. Um, he said he was going to uh, see if he could find some more stars. Uh, I went to the Omni with Wayne. Um, seemingly though, most of the kids that knew Wayne, uh, they all come up to him asking when they were going to uh, do maybe do some recording or things of that nature. Um, I asked Wayne how did he know so many kids. He said they were his spies. They told him everything he wanted to know about everybody. Blood on the Tracks is a new podcast about legendary music producer Phil Spector and the murder of Lana Clarkson. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the award-winning music and true crime podcast Disgraceland and 27 Club. This new serialized podcast is part true crime, part historical fiction, and part spoken word lo-fi beat noir. Each episode is told from the perspective of the people who knew Phil Spector best, his so-called friends. Season one features 10 episodes and is released weekly. Episodes are packed with secrets, confessions, and revelations, and are narrated by the fictionalized voices of real people like Lenny Bruce, Ronnie Spector, Ike Turner, John Lennon, Debbie Harry, and more. Just like Phil Spector, this podcast sounds like nothing you've heard before, because you can't push the needle into the red without leaving a little blood on the tracks. Blood on the Tracks contains adult content and explicit language. Listen to Blood on the Tracks on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What happens when two therapists walk into a podcast and then hold people accountable for their advice? Hey, I'm Lori Gottlieb. I write the Dear Therapist advice column for The Atlantic. And I'm Guy Winch. I write the Dear Guy advice column for TED. And we're the hosts of a new podcast from iHeartRadio called... Dear Therapist. One of the most frustrating things for us as advice columnists is that afterward, no one gets to hear how the advice worked out. But on our show, you will. We guide people through a consultation and then have them come back and tell us what worked or didn't and what we can all learn from it. I was raised in a generation where men didn't show emotions. I am not good at words, <laughs> but going through it has helped me grow in that sense. I've been dating a single dad for two years. His daughter, the six-year-old, uh, she hates me one minute and loves me ten minutes later. I don't want to lose sight of the negative feelings that I caused her. I just hope that at some point she can forgive me. If you'd like to walk into our podcast, email us with your dilemma at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Listen to Dear Therapists on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jason from How Stuff Works and Meredith from our team here at Tinderfoot sat down together to discuss the contents of a 1981 Us Weekly magazine, a double-issue feature on Wayne Williams. Wayne was arrested for the murders of two black males, Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne, that same summer. Until January of 1982, Williams remained in custody, awaiting his trial. Before the trial began, while still in prison, Williams shocked the country by giving an exclusive interview with Us Weekly. The interview itself infuriated the judge and police officials working on the case. The main reason for today's order was this magazine article to be released next week. We were hoodwinked into allowing it to happen. And I don't appreciate it. 
That, of course, was the sheriff's reaction today to the article. When he and the judge in charge of the case read it last night, they were both shocked, and sources say Judge Clarence Cooper was outraged. For most of the morning, they both sought out this woman, defense attorney Mary Welcome. Last night, she told us she knew of the article, but would not say any more. Well, today, she did say more to the judge and sheriff. Apparently, the reporter, a freelance writer, came into town the weekend of August 22nd and 23rd. Today, over the phone, Mickey Siegel told me she went along with Miss Welcome to the jail. When asked who she was, the reporter gave her name. Then Miss Welcome said the woman was with her. No more questions were asked by the jailers. I asked Miss Welcome, did you tell them that she was a newspaper reporter? She said, no, they didn't ask me. <laughs> but again, I didn't think it was necessary to ask a lawyer. Are you doing something you, knew, you know we don't allow, do not allow? Us Magazine paid the writer for the story, which has a part two for a later issue. And we've learned Homer Williams, Wayne's father, was paid $350 for the use of these family pictures. No other money was reportedly paid for the story. The writer now says she plans to write a book about the Atlanta murders. The story is headlined on the cover, but it's what is inside that is bound to raise a few hackles. Williams is highly critical of police conduct, beginning with the night he was stopped and questioned on a bridge over the Chattahoochee River. The two men he's charged with killing were found a short time later in the river. Williams calls the FBI Keystone Cops and compares Atlanta police to Car 54 Where Are You? He says he is a scapegoat, that somebody has to be caught because of the federal and local money put into the investigation. He told the writer, it's a matter of justifying money. When you get all this money and you don't do anything with it, people start to ask questions. At some point, you've got to answer for it. I feel that I'm the scapegoat. Williams said the FBI brought him in for accusations and not questioning, as they said. He said they tried to pit him against his parents. He said he was told his parents confessed he was part of the child killings. In the article, Williams again said he is innocent and even says he did not know the two he is charged with killing, Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. The magazine promises a second installment in the interview they say was conducted at the jail. We'll hear more about this later. This is Monica Kaufman. So this is Us Weekly, like the Us Weekly we still see in newsstands. Yeah, so I pull up the cover and I certainly see a headline that says accused Atlanta killer Wayne Williams tells his exclusive story. But I also see headlines like How to Be Important by Ronald Reagan and How to Beat the SATs. He's become a weird cultural icon, I guess. On this one, his name is up here, and there's a picture of Jackie Kennedy on the cover and a mention of Stevie Nicks. So that kind of sets the stage uh, for what happened here. So reporter Mickey Siegel, she gained access to Wayne via uh, Wayne's attorney, Mary Welcome. So she went into the prison where he was being housed, uh, waiting his trial. And she didn't tell the people at the front gates that the person she had with her was a reporter. And this caused a ton of outrage once this was found out by the judge and the other police officials, the fact that she did not identify the reporter. So this is how it all started. So Mary Welcome was Wayne's attorney, and she thought this was a good idea? I don't know whose idea this was. I have a feeling that in the midst of all the hubbub of this pretrial kind of intensity and news, that most people probably including Wayne Williams, forgot about this interview. Because a lot of what we've uncovered here seems to contradict a lot of what we've uh, heard on the podcast. But Wayne willingly knew he was talking to a reporter, it seems like. Yeah, oh, definitely. And the article actually kicks off in in this way. I just, I find this fascinating, and we'll get into this. So, sleeping in odd snatches, reading book after book, 
watching TV endlessly, Wayne Bertram Williams sits in Georgia's Fulton County Jail. He's articulate and intelligent. His IQ is 136, and he's known to America as the accused Atlanta killer. Yeah, there always seems to be a stress on exceptional intelligence. I'm trying to understand where the narrative of Wayne being a super intelligent person came from. We've heard numbers from 136 to 150 to even from Wayne himself saying, IQ doesn't matter. This seems very questionable as the first thing in this article that we hear. There's a what was then 1981 photo of Wayne Williams um, in his, looks like his living room. Uh, Photos of him also with his parents uh, down in the basement in the the little radio station studio. It looks like a normal childhood. Looks like a normal childhood. All the photos are from H.C. Williams, otherwise known as Homer Williams. Uh, That's Wayne's father. And depending on the source, uh, it says that Homer was paid somewhere between $300 and $3,000 for these photos. Uh, This came at a time when uh, Wayne's mother, Faye, was – she had cancer and was going through a lot of things physically. And frankly, they they didn't have the money. Wayne Williams' attorney, Lynn Watley, says that the family needed about $40,000 to support this case. So what ended up happening is the Williams family – and some others formed a, uh, a legal defense fund called End Justice for All as a way to raise funds uh, or raise money for the trial. And they raised $10. Wow. If the trial lasts six weeks, as expected, it will cost the county more than $190,000 in extra expenses. Most of that money will be spent on housing and feeding the jury, on transportation costs for Williams and Judge Cooper, and for special security equipment. Of course, the tab for all that will be picked up by Fulton County taxpayers. But in the meantime, bills on the defense side are also mounting up. Every day the trial goes on is like a huge cash register ringing up thousands of dollars in legal expenses, legal expenses which may never be paid. Members of the defense team have revealed that co-counsels Mary Welcome and Alvin Binder and investigator Derwood Myers have spent well in excess of $15,000 of their own money on the Williams case so far, mostly to bring fiber and pathological experts to Atlanta for consultation. The trial has also been a financial drain on Williams' parents. Homer and Faye Williams are retired school teachers. They say most of their savings have been spent supporting their son's home radio station and his musical promotion business. A recent highly controversial magazine interview in which Wayne Williams calls the FBI Keystone Cops netted the family $2,000. But lawyers say it will take thousands more to defend Williams. They have launched a nationwide appeal for money trying to raise an immediate $40,000. The fact that you have so much uh, evidence that's going to concern forensics, acoustical tests, uh, fiber evidence, and it's going to be necessary to employ experts in order to uh, effectively assist in Wayne Williams' defense. And uh, obviously these things are going to cost money. Six weeks ago, a special legal defense fund was set up for Williams as a nonprofit organization called And Justice for All. But today, its organizers told me business has not been very good. At this time, we have received one $10 donation. 
Why do you think people have been so reluctant to give money? I think that in the mind of the, of the general public, there is a, a feeling that we have the guilty man, and which means that they have already convicted him. Ware says his organization plans to step up its appeal for funds for Williams' defense, but many courthouse observers agree even if the money doesn't come in now, future publishing opportunities for this famous trial may more than make up the deficit someday. When you talk about public sympathy and really where people were at at this time, I think that is really telling as to what the attitude was in the community um, of this guy being the guy. No one was getting behind them. It almost seems like public sympathy has increased the longer we've become separated from the, the killings. Yeah, absolutely. That was my reaction also. And do we know where this $10 came from? No, we don't. It would be interesting. Yeah. But it was, I think that was incredibly embarrassing to have um, show up on, on the television broadcast that that was as far as that they had gotten, frankly. This kind of media coverage and photos and videos and everything, it just points to something that's been nagging at all of us as we've gone through this process. And that is this kind of constant obsession by the Williams family. And that's, that's both Wayne and Homer to be connected to the media. One of the things I found from the 1983 book called The List, authored by Chet Detlinger and Jeff Prue. Uh, Jeff Prue was uh, with the Los Angeles Times, based here in Atlanta, doing some of the reporting uh, for, for the LA Times. And who's Chet? Who's Chet Detlinger? Chet Detlinger was both the author of this book, but he was also part of the defense team. As a private investigator. As a private investigator. And he was very much involved in questioning all the details of the case, the patterns, was there a pattern, and should every one of the children that was on the list be on the list? I'll, I'll read a quote here. On May 2nd, 1981, Jeff Prue and I, along with a Los Angeles Times photographer, went to the church where Jimmy Ray Payne's funeral was in progress. Like many of the funerals, it was a media circus. Throughout these cases, all the sobs, the moans, the tears, the eulogies, even poems read by bereaved schoolmates were caught in the glare of TV strobe lights and handheld minicams. A woman emerged from the door of the small church during the funeral of Jimmy Ray Payne. Wailing uncontrollably, she swooned into the supportive arms of two men. They began to assist her as she stumbled forward on rubbery legs into the wide, busy street. A photographer dashed towards her, his camera lens only inches from her tearful face. Snapping pictures, he backpedaled across the street, oblivious to the traffic flow. I would see that same cameraman make like a broken field runner again on another street at another time. I also would learn that he had taken photos on the stage of the Sammy Davis Jr. Frank Sinatra benefit concert. For security reasons, only this one still photographer had been allowed on the stage by arrangement with City Hall. Had the mourner of Jimmy Ray Payne known later who the photographer had been, she probably would have had another strong reaction. I wonder if, to this day, she knows. So the photographer that was at Jimmy Ray Payne's funeral, the one he's mentioning, was the same one who was on stage that we've seen in those archive clips. That's right. So in the course of our research, as you know, uh, in the 2010 CNN documentary on the Atlanta child killer, um, who was on stage? Homer Williams. That's right. He was the only one. 
And what did Frank Sinatra say to him on stage? You say, didn't he say something along the lines of like, who let this guy up here? He kind of like shamed him for... The only one that wasn't wearing a tux. Wasn't wearing a tux, yeah. right. So Chet Detlinger doesn't come right... He doesn't come out and say Homer Williams at all. But when you put the uh, connect the dots and put two and two together, you see the connection between Homer Williams um, at Jimmy Ray Payne's funeral and at the uh, benefit concert. And it does seem like a really odd coincidence to have the father of the man convicted as the Atlanta child murderer be at funerals, be on stage at a benefit to raise money to find the serial killer. I mean, we did see, like, in the FBI profile that this would be someone who'd be close. So what are the chances that it would be the convicted person's father? All right, so let's get into a little bit of the the Q&A with Wayne uh, done in prison. Yes. Some of the narrative from Mickey Siegel says, interviewed at the jail, he appears shorter, more frail, and a little bit pudgier than expected. He peppers his sentences with phrases like, let me say this, and you've got to understand, as to be very precise or to distance himself from what he's saying. In addition, the phrase, being in control, comes up several times in our talks. Though he denies it, this appears very important to him. Wow, that's spot on. You've got to understand. I mean, you and I have both heard the interviews. Yeah. He still says that. Yeah. I, I, I could hear Wayne's voice as I read this. And what's the other catchphrase? It was, uh, let me say this, and you've got to understand. So you really grip whoever he's talking to. Yeah. That's a control thing. Yeah. Controlling the narrative. Just like having the reporter come to the, the prison to be able to give this interview in the way that they wanted to release it, the control of the actual story contents itself really comes out here. Um, next up, he, he actually is asked what happened that night on the bridge. And uh, he says he was scared. He says uh, he was shaking. And then he says, quote, let me say this. When they stopped me, I had no idea why. Two or three hours later, toward the end of the questioning, I began to put two and two together. I mean, that's a different story than what we've heard. When we asked for FBI agent Mike McComas's account, McComas says as soon as he pulled him over, Wayne Williams said, this is about those kids, isn't it? Or this is about those children, isn't it? it? That's two different stories. You can either say you were blindsided and had no idea and shaking with fear, or you can say at least what we've heard today from Wayne, and that's... I was totally in control. I was calm and collected. I knew exactly what it was, and I wasn't a bit worried. Those are very different accounts. I don't know if that's hindsight bias or if it's uh, lying. He's he's asked about the press conference. He said, I would never have said anything publicly if the story hadn't already come out. It was leaked to the media uh, that I'd been arrested on a 10-count murder indictment, and no such thing had been done. The Atlanta newspapers and several other national papers had already used my name, address, everything. The New York Post even printed Atlanta monster killer seized. I feared recrimination. I called the conference because I didn't want 200 people coming out and attacking me in my home. At the end of the day, it ended up backfiring because the media perched outside his house anyway. Right. And it ended up being a a bigger media circus. Right. He's asked, are you guilty? He said, no, I am not guilty. Did you have anything to do with Cater or Payne? I didn't even know them. No is emphasized here. Have you ever known any of the others? Have you had them in your singing room? Talking about Gemini. Have you had any of them in your home? And he says, nope, never. 
I mean, there's just the constant questions, which comes up about if he's had a girlfriend before and his acquaintances. But this was a constant focus of the media and of of the various agents to ask him because they were really looking for a pattern. Right. He's talking about having a girlfriend yeah. and having mm-hmm. any romantic ties. I think that's important because of um, his alibi. He says he's looking for Cheryl Johnson that night at 2 a.m. And even Richard Ratcliffe, the polygrapher, he asked him, you know, why would you be going to a, a woman's house at 2 a.m.? And he says, Wayne's told him, or at least in Richard's account, Wayne said, I'm not homosexual. Yeah. He's like, well, I wasn't suggesting that. Yeah. So it seems like it's always been a question on people's minds, maybe from that moment. I don't know where it originated. So he's very explicit here. He says, I have gone out with women, some married, some single. Yes, I do see ladies. And yes, I do date. So he's very firm in making sure that that point came across. So that's part one of the interview. That was October 13th, 1981. Uh, People had to wait two weeks for the next uh, issue to come out. October 27, 1981, uh, the, the kind of primary focus uh, initially on this, this uh, interview is actually with Faye Williams, Wayne's mother. And she was battling cancer, high blood pressure. Uh, she was 66 and had gone through a lot and had just recently retired uh, from being an educator or a school teacher. And she was certainly very frightened for Wayne and what had happened. It was very devastating for their family. Both Wayne's parents, Homer and Faye, were older. When they had Wayne, uh, and this is pretty devastating to them. See, he has been tried, and may as well say has virtually been convicted long before by the media. We had no savings, or anything, and what little bit we had, due to my illness in this case, that's depleted. So it's been mental, and it's been a financial strain. I might add, I think it is a physical strain on her also, uh, because she has. Uh, Suffered with the high blood pressure recently, and back she hadn't been suffering with it. Not until this case Not came this up. Case. Mm-hmm. They didn't have and don't have enough evidence, not only to uh, indict him, but to arrest him. I just like to give them a warning that whether they believe it or not, the killer is still at large. He's out there. So, this is the question that uh, Mickey Siegel asked to resume part two of the interview, the discussion around dog hair. Uh, as we know, Wayne had a German Shepherd. Mm-hmm. This is Wayne's reply. He says, how many dogs are there in Atlanta? And how many different kinds of dogs have they talked about? They're looking for a dog that has a top coat and an undercoat. That fits Malamutes, Collies, Huskies, St. Bernards, some Spaniels, and a German Shepherd, which I have. Anyhow, a dog hair is a dog hair. I took a hair from one dog and a hair from my present dog and couldn't distinguish the difference under a microscope. And the reporter asked, why did you do that? And he replied, after after the case came down, I got curious about it. So let me just pause there for a second. So Wayne's pulling out the microscope in his home to do his own scientific breakdown of the evidence. Staying ahead of the story for sure. Oh, yeah. This is right in line with what Richard Radcliffe has said about them finding a book in his house about how to pass a polygraph test or what are the inner workings of a polygraph test. He seems very closely following something more closely than the average person would. So when the reporter asked, didn't you receive several science awards in school? Uh, Wayne answers, at first, 
But I made a change when I got to high school, a very significant change. Until then, I was Mr. Academia, you know, teacher's pet. But in the eighth grade, that changed drastically, and my home relations changed quite a bit. I became more of an assertive person. My father and I had disagreements over how much trust he put in me. We had plenty of arguments over the car. I don't drink, but one weekend I got completely wasted, completely drunk, and my relationship with my father got much worse. He was pushing me for an education, but I had only applied myself in school when I had to because I had my radio station by then. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like he's trying to distance himself from the intelligent, for lack of a better word, dorky kind of image he was, he was given and almost sound like a like cool and rebellious. And he's using the he's using the media as a platform is what it sounds like to further the vision he wants of himself. One of the questions that kind of was on everyone's mind is with so many kids having gone missing and many of them showing up murder, of course, um, his connection to adolescents um, that were involved in the in the music business with him. And, and the question was really asked of him, didn't your dealings with adolescents make you a suspect? And he said, I always let the authorities know what I was doing. In November 1980, specifically because of the murders, I even called the task force to let them know I'd be out auditioning children. And I, when he was asked, why do you feel you had to do that? He responded, so there wouldn't be any problems later. You don't go around talking to kids on the streets of Atlanta because everything gets reported. You don't understand what this city was like. I had contact with the task force three times before I was ever questioned. Then he was asked, why did you contact them the other two times? And he replied, I can't talk about that. So this is new. This is nothing we've heard before. This story of him reaching out to the task force, and frankly, nothing from the task force that says that this was ever logged, because they really didn't know who he was until they caught him on the bridge. Yeah, I wonder how many people were proactively reaching out to the task force to tell them they would be interacting with children. It seems like another uh, getting close to the case, you know, for the sake of getting close to the case. Yeah, so this entire, you know, couple-week interview um, segment that ran on Us Weekly was really an incredible find that we— We've passed this around the office. We've not known what to do with it. It feels like such a, an isolated, standalone type of interview and also incredibly unusual that it was really the only thing that was coming out between his arrest and the trial. I, I, I almost don't know what to make of it still. And it's odd that it was almost smuggled in by his own lawyer. Yeah. Like th this opportunity to be in such a, a pop culture magazine with like almost a emphasis on like celebrity and luxury. And yeah. here's a Wayne Williams interview, 23-year-old Wayne Williams biding his time in jail. Yeah. And I think it also points to the fact that there's so many occasions during the course of 35 to 40 years where you hear different versions of the same thing. And I think maybe that's where we should leave this is as we've uncovered things in the archives, we've just found that there is no single story that has maintained its um, kind of its essence as the Bible of this is exactly what happened. Um, and I'm not just talking about Wayne Williams. I'm talking about um, FBI agents. I'm talking about police officers who 
they get most of the details right, but their recall of everything that happened so many years later has differed. Absolutely. Every yeah. time, a different story. Yeah, and and so what's difficult here is um, what is the motivation behind that? Is, is there motivation? Is it forgetfulness? Is it changing the narrative to be most convenient? Those are the kind of questions I think that we continue to ask ourselves as we get into the archives and kind of look at the vault. One of the most unusual stories we've heard so far is this one. It involves a woman and her husband driving through a cemetery and witnessing a struggle between a man and a young black child. But despite being on television and being submitted to the task force, this story never seemed to lead anywhere. This is Southview Cemetery off Jonesboro Road in southeast Atlanta. The Clayton County woman and her husband, whom we're not identifying because if they did see the killers, we don't want them to have a way of tracing them. The Clayton County woman and her husband were driving on this narrow cemetery road when they saw a green car coming straight at them at a high rate of speed. Her husband swerved to the side to get out of the way. They say they've reported it to the task force by phone, but the task force hasn't got back to them for an in-person interview. The driver was tall and he's light colored, a light colored black man. And the other one uh, was darker black, and he had on a wig. It was a reddish brown. I know it was a wig because it was, he was losing it because it was a child in the front struggling. He was struggling with that child, but he had broad shoulders. Uh, but he, his head came about like mine, so he would be about my height. But the other one was tall. His head almost touched the roof. But the, I know it was a wig because it was falling off. Sure, you saw a child in the car. Yes, struggling. yes, I saw it because it was just back and forth like that, and like that was trying to hold, hang on to that child. It was a boy between the ages of about ten and twelve, and he had a short haircut. You think you could identify these two men? Yes, and the one with the wig had on glasses. I could identify them. We hope this gave you a feel for just how many stories are out there and why this case is just so hard to untangle. Lastly, we'd like to play you a song that the Atlanta officials promoted in 1981 in the wake of the poor PR the city was facing. The song is called Let's Keep Pulling Together Atlanta and was broadcasted throughout the city. The video features black and white citizens standing side by side and pulling a never-ending rope. Glossing over the obvious racial tension at the time, it's not hard to imagine that it wasn't entirely well-received. You decide. We'll leave you with this. Thanks for listening to the first episode of The Vault, and be sure to tune in next Friday for episode 8. See you next week.
You can go from I should start a podcast to actually starting a podcast with Spreaker. Spreaker's tools allow you to record, manage, distribute, and monetize any podcast idea, whether it's about your business or even your cat. And as your podcast grows, Spreaker helps you manage your success and even monetize it. That means all you need to get started is a microphone and a really good idea. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. At iHeartRadio, we bring you the best podcasts from the Ron Burgundy Show to The Breakfast Club to Stuff You Should Know. Really, all of today's biggest names. But each of these shows started with an idea. And now we want yours. We're looking to you for the next great podcast. Simply go to nextgreatpodcast.com to get the details and submit your pitch. We'll select up to 10 semifinalists and give them $1,000 to produce a pilot. Then, listeners from across the world will vote on their favorite to decide the next great podcast. Enter today at nextgreatpodcast.com. That's nextgreatpodcast.com. Why shouldn't the next great podcast come from you?